0: This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by ProMega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support.
1: Josh, I had people watch me and my experiment still failed.
0: (laughs) What you're asking for here and what you're saying you need to be successful
1: in this program is 100% reasonable. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we open the mailbag to answer your questions about grant reporting, getting support as a master's student, and more. Stay with us.
0: And we're back. This is Hello PhD episode 197. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Erneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab.
1: Dan, welcome to
0: the Dog Days of Summer.
1: You are in such luck, Josh, because I know when it gets hot out, the number one thing you think of to cool off is this ethanol that I have for us. (laughs) Dan, I
0: actually went for a run uh, about an hour ago, and I thought, you know, a nice,
1: crisp, cold beer would really hit the Mm, spot. That is why I have for you Silent is the Night, a black double IPA. Josh, mm. if, when you think refreshing, you first you think IPA, and then if you if you really need something extra refreshing, you think double IPA. I'm sure that's true.
0: Yeah, nice thick double IPA. Uh, I'm gonna taste this one, Dan. Yeah, this is an 8.6%. Um, I don't usually like a high gravity beer or a double uh, specifically, but who knows? We'll see what happens. This could be your lucky day.
1: No sir. That was <laughs> that was the smallest <laughs> sip ever taken of any beverage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, i'm not at risk of overindulging in this one
1: i'm pretty sure the hummingbirds visiting the flowers take a bigger drink than you just took that <laughs> beer
0: uh, yeah i have to ask you dan it, just to be uh, totally transparent um i realized i brushed my teeth like not too long ago and oh. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like just a few minutes ago it was like a while b- back uh i don't know
1: it's tasting a little sour to me but are you getting that as well Well, hopefully it didn't go bad in the car on the way back to your house, Uh, because mine has been cold since I got it, but yours definitely went in the car, so who knows?
0: Well, I think this may just be a a matter of personal taste. Uh, We had very good luck with our beer from Forward Brewing, uh, and I should say this is from Forward Brewing in Annapolis, Maryland, where another beer from where you visited a few weeks ago, and we loved what we had last time. Yeah, the Bacchus series we had last time, Dan, that, w- that was tasty. So no offense to forward. I think this one may just not uh, connect with me on a personal level. <laughs> You're not in the right headspace or something. <laughs> I think not. I think not. But I do appreciate you picking this up, Dan. And I will continue to take some micro-sips. I will micro-dose this uh,
1: <laughs> double IPA. I don't uh, believe you. I do not <laughs> believe you. I'm going to keep track, everybody listening. I will watch him and <laughs> okay. make sure he actually takes some micro-sips. <laughs> okay. All right, Joshua, we also want to thank our sponsors at Promega. Uh, I know that you, Josh, have career goals. And if you want to make sure that you and your boss or your PI are on the same page, you can create an individual development plan. An IDP ties your employees' responsibilities to learning objectives and professional growth. And that may sound hard to do, but you can learn how to write an IDP if you go to promega.com slash hello IDP. All
0: right, Dan, let's open the mailbag. All right, Dan, we've got some great questions that listeners have sent in to us over the last little bit. Uh,
1: Why don't you uh, get us started with the first one? I will do that. The first one comes from Alan, uh, and Alan was doing a summer program. So I will just read parts of the email because there's a a lot of extra detail, Josh, that you're able to read, but I'm not going to read on the show, uh, but I'll just read parts of it. So Alan says, I've been joining your podcast for three years now, and it has significantly helped me in dealing with uncertainty in my own academic journey as well as vastly expanding my knowledge of ethanol. So first off, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Now, Alan will know, double IPA on a hot summer day, bad idea. Bad idea. Don't do it. Uh, Alan was applying for summer programs, basically, effectively summer internships, and he was emailing the PI of a lab and kind of doing this back-and-forth email thing. In the meantime, he says, I assumed it was all going to work out well, and in order to fund the summer research, I spontaneously applied for a grant from an independent organization, which specifically funds early career researchers in biosecurity and biosafety. Unfortunately, it had a deadline, and which was just three weeks after he got the confirmation email from the researcher who he was going to work with. And so in the anticipated activity section, he just put the kind of research he expected he would be doing in the summer. So Josh, hopefully this sets it up. He, he's not a close affiliate of this lab. He's basically contacting over email. He applies for a grant based on what he thinks he will be doing. So far, so good? Got it. So he heard back from the grant committee, and after an interview with them, where he again had to speculate on the kind of work he would be doing in the internship and how getting this grant would put him on the path toward a career in biosecurity, he got the grant. And it was $5,000, which is a great uh, funding for this summer program. Yeah, congrats. Uh, You know, we we say often, if you can bring your own money, that is going to only help you. He says he spent three months studying, and I have to confess that what I was actually doing was not quite what I had hoped for and not what I promised in the grant application. The main issue is that the group only moved to the lab last year, which means their labs were not fully set up and did not have the same capabilities they used to have, which is what I was going, to, which is what I was going by when I decided to come here for the internship and applied for the grant. I've now been asked to write a report about how I used the grant for the grant committee by the end of the month. While I did learn something practical through the internship, and fulfilled the terms of the grant, it was by far not as much as I had hoped for. And I can't help feel a bit guilty about it. In addition to wondering if I could have found a better lab to spend my precious summer in. So the question I think from Alan is, what does he owe this grant committee? He had to make a decision based on kind of minimal information. A lot of things happened where the lab wasn't quite fully set up. And he didn't get to do the things he said he would do. And he doesn't know whether this is kind of a, a breach of that trust, that contract he feels like he signed with the grant committee, or if this is totally expected in a normal way that grants sometimes work out. So Josh, help us.
0: Yeah, this is a great question. And, and Dan, I want to ask you a question first before we get into this. In your experience with, with research and working in a lab, do you find or what percentage of the time do you feel like things worked out exactly like you thought they would when you went into it?
1: I, I for one, Josh, know that I have cured cancer so many times now because I always <laughs> promised I was going to cure cancer in every grant application. I'm sure you were the same. Yeah, and just because you didn't keep good notes, you weren't able to replicate. Oh, it's so close. Result. So yeah. close. Yeah, no, I, I. there is there is so much uncertainty in research. And, and that would have been my take on this email that, look, they're funding you to help you get an education. They're not necessarily funding, and I, and I think he says this, they're looking for him to get a career in biosecurity. So their outcome is probably pegged to training a person. Not so much. Did you research a spef- specific organism or understand a certain pathway? Is that your read? Exactly,
0: Dan. And as I think I've mentioned on the show, I work uh, with a funding agency, uh, that supports, uh, trainees at various levels. Um, you know, I've been on the other side where I've worked with, with summer internship programs, uh, Similar to the one that Alan is talking about here, I think in general, Dan, there, there's two major types of of grants. I mean, there's probably more than two, but I think there's two major ones that that researchers and trainees might come across. Um, the first type of grant is one that funds specific research, funds a specific project. You know, in the in the U.S., this might be like your your typical NIH grant, like an R1 or or something like that, where you are writing a proposal for a specific type of research and you're evaluated on the project itself, it's likelihood of succeeding. What will be the impact if that research turns out a certain way? But then there's this other type of, of grant or fellowship that funds the person, not necessarily the project, most internships or program or funding opportunities targeted towards trainees, whether it's undergraduates or graduate students or postdocs, um, like the one I believe Alan is referring to, those really are typically to support individuals who have a potential career idea, career goal. And so these fellowships are really to support those people on their pursuit of that specific career goal. And so as Alan mentioned to us with this opportunity, it sounds like this was an a funding opportunity for students at his level who are interested in careers in biosecurity, biosafety. Um, And one way they'd be pursuing that through this fellowship is to get some research experience. So in my view, um, Alan, I don't think you need to worry at all. Um, Certainly your experience didn't turn out the way maybe you hoped it would and things unforeseen things happened in the lab, but I can guarantee you the funding agency, especially one that funds summer internships, knows there's a wide range of things that could happen that are totally out of your control uh, with regard to uh, from the project, the way you thought your research was going to go when you wrote the proposal to what actually happened. So I think what's important is it sounds like in spite of those challenges and those unforeseen circumstances, you do know more now than you did before. And you probably have a certain difference in idea about your future career and what your next steps are and different skills you learned um, that you certainly could talk about in this report. Uh, so I don't think you should worry about that at all. Um, but really just think about what did I gain? What did I learn from this experience?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's so right. And help it, that helps me understand the difference between the investment in the person and the investment in a project. So I can imagine there are plenty of disease focused or cancer society. So there's a breast cancer foundation. If they give you $2 million to research a certain gene, and you go spend that on your your pet geology project, that would be a breach of trust and understanding. But if they give money for you to spend three months working in a lab, hopefully adjacent to biosecurity, then all that they care about is that you did the research and th- and they were investing in you as a person. I think that's a, a totally different track of investment.
0: Absolutely. So I think in writing that report, I think it's important just to take a look back and remember what were the goals of that program that you applied for. And r- when you reflect on the experiences you had and the things you learned, if you can tie those experiences in to the original goal of the program, and I'm sure there are ways you can do that, um, then you're on the right track. And even if it's something like it changed your view of that career path, or maybe it altered what you think, that's very real, and that's a thing that can happen. And at the end of the day, Alan, I don't uh, I don't think anyone is going to follow you 15 years down the road and say, like, oh, you didn't go on this career path that you said you were going to when you did the summer internship, so um, I think you're going to be fine.
1: If Alan, we're working on one of those specific projects. The project was funded. And let's say uh, it was a mouse model and the the project really changed. We, we got new information. Somebody scooped the lab. And now we know we shouldn't pursue this. But we already have the money. Is one of those project-based uh, funding opportunities, should you talk to the funding agency about that? Yeah,
0: that's a great question, Dan. I'm glad you brought that up. Or and just and burn actually... the money. Burn the money in piles and... <laughs> going a band uh, you probably yeah you probably don't want to do that uh, unless you're okay with jeopardizing your ability to get funds from them in the future uh, but you bring up a great point Dan uh, if you did receive funding those specific for a certain project and again, plans do change uh, life happens brings up unforeseen challenges um, you're right the the right thing to always do is to reach out to a program officer or someone who's from that organization who gave you the funding and just have a conversation with them and let them know what's going on um, I think that's one thing that grantees don't do enough of is reach. And this is coming from someone who works at a funding agency is reach out and have conversations, um, with the folks who are funding you. And, and I imagine, um, they will help put your mind at ease and help you know what the best way forward is. And, and that's a good point too, even for, for Alan or somebody in a situation like that, who has a fellowship that funds them as a person, if your plans are changing and you're uncertain how the, that will impact your fellowship by all means, reach out, um, Reach out to your funding agency and ask them those questions directly.
1: The one thing that I hope is that Alan has this in 16 point font on his CV, bold, uh, maybe some emoji sparkles <laughs> around it, because having this funded, even the internship over the summer, is such a great resource on your CV. So please put that there, Alan. Absolutely. All right, rolling ahead, Josh. Good day to you, Dan and Joshua. I'm a first year master's student in Germany. And I work as a research assistant in a very prestigious institute. I first started as an intern directly after graduating from college. So my technical and social experience in the lab was very basic. I was supervised by a PhD student that wasn't allowing me to run experiments or parts of any experiments on my own and, I, and was treating me in a superior way that I thought in the beginning, every master's student is treated that way. So I didn't do anything about it. Later then, the PI wanted me to work on a different project that she is supervising which is fine for me because she gives me the lead in what I do, and I like the independency percentage she offers. However, she isn't available most of the time, and I rarely have meetings with her to discuss the project, and she doesn't want me to be supervised by another PhD student that works on the same project. I have two questions for you. What do you advise me to do regarding my project's lack of communication, and what can I do as a master's student to navigate my way through academia since all the online and official activities are for PhD students? Love the podcast. Yours, 12 Degrees. This sounds to me, Josh, like a student in a master's program who doesn't feel like she's getting the same uh, responsibility and treatment as somebody in a PhD program. And I'd I'd love for you to unpack what you see as the difference between those two training paths and uh, what she should do to get support. First of all, I would say... Yeah, I'm sorry you're having this experience, and unfortunately, I
0: think it can be a common one where you're in a lab, you're trying to work on your project, you're trying to make your way um, through your program, and you're just not getting the mentorship that you really need. And so, Dan, I don't necessarily think this is indicative of a typical way that people in academia are treated just because they are a master's student. Uh, Instead, this sounds like This might be a function of poor mentorship from this PhD student that you were paired with initially, um, and also this advisor who happens to be, be running the lab. Taking a step back, my general opinion is that there shouldn't be a difference in the type of mentorship or the quality of mentorship that anyone gets in a lab, regardless of their educational level. Uh, for example, even if there's an undergraduate who's working in a lab who maybe they don't know as much coming in, they don't have as much experience, but if they're paired with a graduate student or a postdoc in the lab, they should be able to get the guidance and mentorship at the bench um, that they need to be successful in their project. Uh, the same as a PhD student might have access to from a postdoc or from the advisor in the lab. I mean, granted, the scope of the projects might be different between an undergraduate and a master's student and a PhD student. But certainly, there should not be a situation where, well, a master's student, just by function of being a master's student, shouldn't be entitled to the same quality of mentorship as a grad student. In fact, I would say, Dan, it's almost the opposite. Like when I think about even stepping back to undergraduates that I've mentored in the lab, we put a greater focus on mentorship and making sure they have the information and skill building. They need to be successful because they have less experience coming in. So This sounds to me like uh, 12 degrees in a situation where they got paired with a bum PhD student who was not really that skilled in being
1: a mentor or not that interested in in being a mentor. Thinking back to our training in the U.S., and this may be a totally different scenario in Germany, I don't remember a lot of people entering a master's program. Um, Because it wasn't funded in the U.S., to earn a master's degree, you had to pay for it yourself. There, I don't remember a lot of people coming in for a master's program. I remember a lot of people entering a PhD program and finishing with a master's degree, but it's a different experience. And so, I don't. What was your experience, Josh? Do you remember a lot of people who came in for the master's degree?
0: No, Dan. I mean that—that that is a difference in the type of programs we were in, and I think that's typically true in the United States today, at least in in biomedical type programs is there were occasionally master's students, but typically the master's degree was if you entered as a PhD student and for whatever reason, you know, you were midway or beyond through your program, maybe you'd gotten past your quals, but you decided you wanted to not go all the way through with the PhD, Uh, there was a way you could exit early and as recognition for your accomplishments in the program thus far, you could you could leave with a master's degree instead of continuing all the way to the PhD. So, uh, but there was not a terminal master's program you could directly apply to.
1: Certainly, there were plenty of master's degrees in other programs at the university that we went to, uh, masters of public health and other types of things. And and I think in Europe it's different. Um, one thought I had was perhaps it is not the most common uh, path through graduate training in in germany or wherever and so if everybody is doing a phd program then they're going to have support for phd programs there's going to be uh ombudsmen and they're going to be directors of graduate studies and everybody's kind of focused around supporting phd students and if it's unusual to have a master's student there would not be those support networks and so i think that could be really challenging but i don't actually know how it is in germany so we'll have to hear from our listeners
0: no, that is true. Um, but I guess one thing I would recommend either way, and, and it sounds like that could be the case, Dan, the way the question is worded that that many of the online official activities are specifically for PhD students. So, you know, that makes you think that maybe there's a lot of PhD students and maybe fewer master students. So I guess advice I would give for both of your questions, one about how do you navigate getting a lack of communication from your Advisor, um, but also how do you navigate with this lack of activities that are available that you think could be helpful, but it doesn't seem like you have access to them, and and that is I would I would be open about what you want uh, first with your advisor. I think I'm, I think what you're asking for here and what you're saying you need to be successful in this program is 100% reasonable and that's an expectation you should have from your advisor. I mean, this person is your advisor. Their job is to advise you <laughs> in this project. Uh, and so by them taking you into their lab, uh, that's part of their job to do that. And so, um, you know, you you mentioned that the, the PI likes to give you some independence. And you know, a lot of times some PIs, as their default state with a graduate student, is they say, all right, you know, part of what I want you to do, a way I want you to develop is as an independent scientist. So I'm not going to be standing over your shoulder all the time. I'm going to wait for you to come to me. And not every advisor has that phenotype, but some do. Um, The challenge with that sometimes is students don't always recognize that's what's happening. And the advisor hasn't also said, but make sure you do come to me if you get stuck or you need something. So that's one possibility. And so my first piece of advice, I guess, would be you need to articulate exactly what you're telling us uh, to your advisor that, you know, this is a need that I have. Like, I really like this project. I like this independence you're giving it, giving me, but I'm starting to feel a little isolated and stuck. Um, so could you help me through that?
1: And it sounds like the PI is supportive when, when present and available. The PI does seem supportive.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, you say you rarely have meetings with her. Um, but maybe she would be open to having more meetings. Maybe she doesn't realize that you want more meetings. I know, Dan, sometimes I tend to avoid meetings (laughs) as much as I can, but I'm certainly willing to have meetings that that need to be had, that, that serve a purpose and are helpful.
1: Makes total sense. Anything more to say on that one?
0: Um, yeah, Dan. And then the last thing just about these activities, these academic activities that you're seeing that exist in your department uh, for Ph.D. students. Um, similarly, I would ask you to figure out, is there a director of graduate studies or some administrator or faculty member who leads or oversees these activities? And just go have a conversation with them and let you know if you don't know them, introduce yourself as a master student and say, hey, you know, I know about these activities. I'm in this master's track, but I think this would be really helpful. Is there any way I could sit in on some of these? And one thing that you typically will find in an academic environment is people just really want, they, they really just want to help people learn. Um, and so seeing someone who's really interested or eager to learn the material or take in the content that they're providing uh, through these sessions would likely be more than willing to let you sit in. So
1: I, I would ask. And I, I think... 12 degrees could be open to starting their own group, right? If if there are many gra- many master students who are experiencing the same thing but they are not plugged in, they're not coordinating with each other, then it can feel very isolating because you think you're the only master student who's going through this. Getting together with other master students might show you yeah, this is how it is, and it's terrible for everybody, and we need to fix it, or it just happens to be my specific situation. And so, even finding a way to socialize among those master students might be a great way to do it, and it can be something informal or formal. It depends on, on what you want out of it.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Dan. I mean, if there is a critical mass of master students in your department, that strength in numbers as a collective voice could be a way that you really could impact some change for the better for the people who are master's students. And might be a way to, to get some of this support, this formalized sort of support and information um, that currently is not available. So that's, that's great advice, Dan, to seek out the other master's students and talk to them. At the very least, you have a new support system.
1: All right, Josh, I think we have time for one more. This email comes from Lisa. I did not have a traditional route to graduate school. After I graduated from college, I worked abroad, intending to apply to graduate school after that. It was an amazing experience, and I don't regret it, but it did mean that when I did show up to grad school, my lab hands, quotes around lab hands, were pretty bad. While I was abroad, I read the literature, and I forgot basic techniques, the tricks for getting a TLC to look nice, how to optimize column conditions, etc., Then my problem worsened because I broke my leg shortly after joining the lab and spent the majority of my second semester unable to do experiments. The result is that since I returned to the lab, I have made very slow progress. I think the biggest reason is, quite frankly, my technical skills are leagues behind everyone else in my lab. I have great ideas, and I'll suggest things to colleagues, and they'll get it to work just fine for whatever reason. When I do things, they always seem to end up a mess. I think another issue is that I have never had a hands-on PI or mentor, even as an undergrad, I've always had a complete independence to do experiments myself. I think that probably means I am making very obvious errors, and that if someone watched me try to do things, they would very quickly realize problems in my techniques, but I've never been shown. I'm supposed to be, quote, experienced, per being year two, but I'm not. I'm not really sure how to improve my techniques, because I also don't really know what it is I'm doing wrong. Any thoughts? Josh, I had people watch me, and my experiments still failed. Did that help you, or was that a lot of pressure? No, I mean, I actually appreciate when I was, especially when I was starting out. I had people who would look over my shoulder. The times that I think about, I think I've talked about on the show before, are when you're working in with sterile technique inside a hood. And I was an undergrad at the time when I first learned these, and my PI would, you know, he'd look over my shoulder. And I would open up the pipette, you know, it's a sterile thing in a paper sleeve and I'd open it up. He's like, throw it away. He's like, what did I do? <laughs> he's like, you touched it like the inside of something. So I threw that away and I opened another one. He's like, throw it away. He's like, what did I do? And you touched it on something else, but you don't see it until somebody is right there showing you. And I, I had that experience, thankfully. And so I got very good at doing aseptic technique, but I can imagine all of these techniques, all of these skills that we develop, there are little tricks, um, the way that you hold forceps as you take a cover slip out of a, a dish, like all of it requires somebody to pass down that knowledge if you're not going to try and figure it out on your own.
0: Yeah, that is totally true. And I can really identify with, with that as well, Dan. Uh, you know, for me, I felt like it was the the molecular biology and the biochemistry techniques um, that were just really difficult for me um, and didn't seem to go be as clean for me as as for other people. And and I'll say I think there are some advantages to being a trainee in 2023 than back when we were in grad school because really back then Dan I don't know if you ever tried to learn like DNA cloning or molecular biology from there was that one giant manual that oh, every oh yeah had. what was that called <laughs> you know what I'm talking about though I there know what you're talking pl- about
1: you could uh, you could kill a person with it
0: yeah but that was really the worst way to learn because as you probably know so much in science is about feel and seeing it and their exceptions. And so um, I always found that really unhelpful. But now with the advent of, of YouTube and a lot of other uh, sort of video-based lab skills tutorials, um, that could be one place to start is you, if you don't have access to someone. I think the best thing, Dan, if you have access to someone in your lab and you know, hey, there's Susie over there, her Western blots are always perfect. You know this is a time to and, and this can be hard as a graduate student to sort of be humble, <laughs> I guess, and be honest and say, "Hey, Susie, in lab eating, I noticed you always have such crisp and clean Western blots. Do you mind if I watch you next time you're doing that? Could I just observe you doing that, or I have a Western blot coming up. I need to do um, would you just watch me do it or kind of go through it with me because I'm just trying to improve and I know most people are more than happy to sort of share their expertise, share their experience uh, with other people. Um, So if there's someone in your lab that's doing these types of experiments and you think they do it really well, just being open and honest with them. Um, If not, though, I would, you know, consulting some online uh, videos on YouTube or, or some other source could be helpful.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that's holding Lisa back in this situation is feeling like I'm a second year. I shouldn't I, I feel embarrassed to be asking somebody to show me something that an undergrad has already learned or is is learning. you know what I mean it's the psychological uh danger, not necessarily that she doesn't recognize that there's a problem. She realizes it's not working out for her the way that it works out for other people, and she knows the path to get there is just kind of like swallowing your pride, which is hard. I think it's hard in the lab, especially because there is a sort of a hierarchy established in terms of people's experience. And people who get good results and people who've been there a long time are looked up to. And so it's hard to take yourself back to a basic a learner's position and say, look, I, I don't know how to do this the way that you do this, and I want to learn.
0: You know, Dan, a, a story that, that I'll share that I think could be helpful for Lisa. This is something that always, always stands out to me. I had a good friend when I was a postdoc, and he was a medical research fellow. And so he had gone the MD route. So he had gone to medical school and then he'd been a resident. And then he decided during his residency that he was actually interested in research along with uh, being a doctor and, and seeing patients. And so he actually started working in a lab on campus for the first time in his life. So this was someone who was a doctor. <laughs> you know, he was a uh, Plenty you know, he was of training. an oncologist. Yeah, he was an oncologist and he's working in a lab for the first time. And he told me this story about you know he was needing to do flow cytometry uh, as a big part of his project uh, first of all he didn't even really know what flow cytometry was like when he came into the into yeah. the lab right and it just so turned out the person in the lab this was a very small lab who was really experienced with doing this certain type of flow cytometry he was doing was the undergrad who was in the lab and so he said it took a little while because he kept having to ask the undergrad to teach him how to do it Amazing. The undergrad wouldn't really was very hesitant and resistant to actually breaking it down into these basic steps so he could learn. Because from the undergrad's point of view is like, wait, but
1: you're you are a medical doctor. <laughs> <You're> a medical <laughs> what am doctor? I possibly going to teach you?
0: Yeah. So what you should know is really irrelevant. Right. It's what you do know. And in the lab spaces, it's not so clear cut. Like, well, I'm a second year grad student, so I should know more than the undergrad. Or I'm a medical research fellow, so I should know more than the undergrad, uh, right? That doesn't really matter, right? We all know different things. And as I mentioned, I was really terrible at Western blots. I was really good at uh, maybe unlike you, Dan, we should have connected. I was really good at cell culture, uh, sterile technique, microbiology techniques. And so I would often help other people sort of brush up on some of those techniques I was more skilled at, and then they would help at uh, some other types of techniques uh, help me, things that they were better at than me. And I think we've, we've talked about this in other contexts, I think for science to work at its best, this idea of team science, where we all have things that we're better at, that are more of a challenge, and the more we can break down these barriers of thinking, well, this is my independent project, this is your independent project. Maybe we talk intellectually at lab meeting, uh, but the more we can actually collaborate and work together in a real hands-on way, the more science will move forward for all of us.
1: So true. And, and the, the fixes for Lisa's experiments might be really trivial, it could be some some reagent is out of date, or she didn't mix them enough, or it could be something so simple that somebody will notice because they will just see her doing it. Uh, Josh, I just wanted to share the story of, you know, I do computer programming now for a job. I didn't, I was not trained in computer programming. That's not what I went to graduate school for, and so there is an infinite amount about computers and computer languages that I don't know. I accept that that's that's you know I'm able to do the things I'm able to do and learn the rest as I need it, but. I work with a guy who has been doing this for 30 years. Like he's he's really an expert. He's, he's really amazing. And what I love is sometimes he'll say, I don't have any idea how this works. Like he will have some field of, of the work that we do that he just doesn't understand. And he's willing to say that. And that releases me to say, oh, look, I, I also don't understand that. And here's another thing that I don't understand. Could you explain it to me? Um, I, I can let down my sort of imposture mask because he, as an experienced person is able to say, Hey, I don't know everything either. And so I think for Lisa, this is a great opportunity to kind of lower some of those barriers and say, look, I don't know how to do this TLC. And that will help the person who's helping her say, Hey, I don't understand this other thing and I need your help. And, and just like you said, Josh, it can be reciprocal, um, but it just takes somebody being <laughs> brave enough to admit they don't understand
0: totally agree, Dan. And that, that, that improves the entire culture and climate and probably productivity of the whole lab group.
1: That's it. And, and productivity does go up when people are collaborating rather than trying to one-up each other.
0: All right, Dan, these were great questions. Thanks to everybody for writing in. If you've got a question that you'd like for us to discuss on the show, we'd love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you'd like to support the show, the best thing you can do is share it with a friend, a lab mate, or your department listserv. We reach new listeners entirely by word of mouth, so we need your help. If you'd like, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate
1: the beer money, and I'm hoping for a better one next week. We will see. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Thanks to the ongoing support from all of our patrons.
1: I would like to point out, for the record, he did not take a single micro sip, not a drop. (laughs) It more evaporated, more evaporated than you drank. And now it's probably warm, so it's even worse.
0: That's true. That is true, Dan. It is.
1: It's been great, Dan, as always.
0: Actually, I think I'm going to see you. Uh, You're going to be coming back up to Maryland soon. So looking forward to that. I'm sure we'll have some stories and some new ethanols to discuss next time. We'll hit the bottle
1: shop, find something you like better, Josh. We'll see you then.